Friends, good to see you. Um, Celia and I spend about every other weekend in Michigan, and we're here then on the alternate weekends. It's always good to come back and to spend time with you, as well as it's good sometimes to be away and spend time with the rest of the family. But it's like coming home when we're here, and we're just grateful for that and thankful for the opportunity to spend time with you this morning, continuing a series of messages on a theme we've been talking about for the entire month, the theme of idolatry. And I want to introduce you to someone who I think knew a good deal about idolatry. Gutsan Borglum was inspired. The famed American sculptor of a century ago was moved to create something noble, something majestic, something that would stir the American spirit. He was going to sculpt faces worthy of the American character. He had no small dreams. He needed a stone larger than the largest block of granite ever quarried. So he set out for the Wild West looking for a mountain he could carve, larger than any others had looked before. He wrote about the place he was looking for. Here's what he had to say. He said, let us place there carved high, as close to heaven as we can their faces. Then breathe a prayer that these records will endure until the wind and the rain alone shall wear them away. So Borglum sets out for the west. He crosses into South Dakota. He comes to the Badlands, where the prairie becomes the wild west. And he found the granite he was looking for a 5,275-foot mountain of granite. The exposed southern face provided the exact surface he needed for his work. So hanging from ropes and guiding a team with him, he blasted with dynamite, and then he chiseled with air hammers, and then he smoothed rock with his own hands until finally, six and a half years later, his great work was done. Carved high, close to heaven, were four faces that reflect the American character, and you know them as the faces on Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. What a glorious dream. What an inspiration to look high and carve something close to heaven worthy of the American character. Now, use your imagination for just a moment and change the scene just a bit with me. Imagine that it is the day of dedication. We are standing at the foot of Mount Rushmore and we are looking up and behind huge canvases Suspended by ropes are the faces that Borglund has carved. And now imagine that the national anthem has been sung, that the dignitaries have all had their speeches, the Secretary of the Interior, the Governor of the State of South Dakota. They've all had their say, and the great moment for unveiling has come. And Borglund, with a flourish, yanks on the rope, the canvas falls, and there is absolute silence. And imagine that suddenly, somewhere, somebody begins to laugh. And imagine it's soon 
The laughter mixed with gasps spreads through the entire audience gathered at the foot of the mountain because looking up, they see four faces of Gutsan Borglum. Preposterous, you think, that someone would carve their own face on a mountain, that the thought of looking up to see something worthy and something noble of our own character, that that would be a picture of the sculptor himself? Ridiculous. I wonder if that's what the children of Israel were thinking when the prophet Isaiah described a somewhat similar scene in the 44th chapter. When Isaiah is going to talk to his people, God's people, about idolatry. When in that chapter, the prophet begins with an ominous note. Listen to these words from verse 6 in Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God who then is like me. Let him proclaim it. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I love that. I can imagine Borgman listening to these words. No other rock. God says, no, there's no other rock. Only God, right? No other rock. I know not one. If you're going to carve the face of something noble and mighty, the greatest face ever known by any man, in a mountain, you want to carve the face of the only God who belongs there, the God who made us, the God who redeems his people, the God whose we are. It's the only face that should be high and close to heaven. Now, Isaiah, having heard those words from God, the rock, saying, no gods beside me. Isaiah tells a story about a carpenter. I love this story. A carpenter who's working on a project, like Borgman going to carve a face, a carpenter has his own project. Listen to the story in chapter 44 again. Here's how he tells it. He says, the carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels. He marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man, in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest. He planted a pine, and rain made it grow. It's man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat, eats his fill. And he also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Well, at this point, I think the children of Israel got to be smiling. Maybe they're elbowing each other, and a few of them might be laughing. I mean, really, the story of a carpenter goes into the woods, cut, cuts down a tree, builds a fire, cooks his meal, got a little wood left over, so he begins to carve something he can worship, and it is his God. And he says to the same thing that warmed his food that he ate from, that warmed his body, he says, you're my God, you save me. Guess what that God looks like? 
But Isaiah tells us it's in the shape of a man. Isaiah then, having heard the man say, save me, you are my God, he then says, I love this, no one stops to think. That's the problem with idolatry. You know, no one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Can't bring himself to admit that he has given his life to something fundamentally false. Isaiah told this story because he saw God's people selling themselves to a culture of idols, to a land and a people who didn't know God or worship him as God, but who carved its gods from blocks of wood or sculpted them from blocks of stone. And he forces God's people to witness the absurdity of using these raw materials for our own good and then deciding that these things that we have made for our own good are exactly the things that we are going to worship. It's ridiculous, says Isaiah, to God's people 2,500 years ago. And in his mind is rumbling this word from Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. What's number one of God's top ten list? You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the image of anything, he goes on to say, right? No idols. And yet, they made them, and they worshiped them, and we read the story, and somehow it grips us as well, because truth of the matter of fact uh, is that we are no less absurd at times in our image of God and the God we worship than God's people all those years ago. So what are our idols look like? If there's an edge to enjoying a story about the guy who makes an idol and worship it, it is because you realize that I, I may have some of that in my own nature, that I might um, have an impulse at times to stand in front of a block of granite and make something I think that is wonderful and that something looks a lot like me or maybe like you. I'm, I'm guessing that the images that we have of God look far more like us than they do of God himself. You're beginning to get the point, right? At the root of the sin of idolatry is selfishness. It's self-worship. It's narcissism. It's the sin that encourages us to say, I can believe what I want to believe. I can think what I want to think. I can do what I want to do. And it's okay because after all, it is all about me. I mean, who else is it about? Who else could it be about? In a commencement speech at Franciscan University, and you take note of this, um, just, you know, file it somewhere mentally or put it on your cell phone or whatever you have to do. 
check out Peter Kreeft's address. Kreeft is a Catholic theologian, and this past June he gave a 19-minute speech, commencement speech, that is brilliant. I mean, it is worth 19 minutes of your life. Um, he called it 10 Lies of Contemporary Culture. And Peter Kreeft says one of these lies, he, he calls the most seductively satanic sentence he had ever heard. Now that's saying something from a theologian, right? The most seductively satanic sentence he'd ever heard. And he said, I learned it in 1970s from my children's television program, The Electric Company. And here it goes. You ready for it? The most important person in the whole wide world is you. <laughs> the most important person in the whole wide world is you. You wonder why we're, you know, we have some of the problems we have in our world when we are the generation who's been raised to believe that we are the most important people in the world. I mean, that it's about me? Really, would we want to teach our children that? Do we want to believe that? Folks, this is an echo from the Garden of Eden when the devil whispered into Eve's ear, hey, you know, you can be like God. I mean, you can be God. Really, just do it. Go ahead. Because nobody more important than you. I mean, you want to be God. Be God. Uh, there are just a couple things I hope you can walk away with this morning, and one is... Um, four words that you need to say to the people around you. I'm maybe going to invite you to say that to the people next to you this morning. I just invite you to turn to each other and say, you know, you don't have to say you know. Just say, it's not about you. Go ahead and say it to each other. Yeah? It's not about you. Ah. <sighs> We need to remind each other that it, it is, really isn't about you. Now, I, I get a little righteous when I say something like that because I'm feeling pretty good about myself when I look at you and say, you know, it's not about you. Because the temptation is to say it's not about you because it's about me. It's about me. Uh, it's not your face on Mount Rushmore, it's mine. And while you're a little embarrassed by saying to the person next to you, you know, it's not about you, you may even find it more difficult to have to say to yourself, it's not about me. There are some moments in life when God is going to just give you a whack upside the head and say, it's not about, it's not about me. And in 1970, I was a newly ordained preacher in Gary, Indiana on Burr Street just off the Borman Expressway about 40 miles from here. It was a Sunday night and um, I was waxing eloquent on something from the Heidelberg Catechism. Probably wasn't eloquent and I was, maybe wasn't even waxing, but I was preaching about something. I don't know what. Um, and there were maybe 30 people in the congregation, which is a really good crowd for a Sunday night at Beacon Light in those days. be a pretty good crowd here on a Sunday night in those days. Uh, but anyway, I was uh, uh, preaching about something, and I remember this like it happened a minute ago. Suddenly, there was this absolutely amazing, incredible, frightening, 
frightening. I mean, it shook me to the core of my being. Realization that people were looking at me and listening to me and believing what I was saying. And in that moment, it's like God said to a 25-year-old preacher just starting, Dion, it's not about you. I will not forget that. And there have been times in my ministry God has had to remind me of that. It isn't about me. It isn't about me. And maybe you need to be able to say that about yourself. In fact, you said to each other, it's not about you. Are you willing to say it with me? It's not about me. It is not about me. Well, who's it about? If not about you and about me, it is about God. The children of Israel tempted by a culture surrounding them, asking them to carve gods that they could make in their own image. To them, God says these words. Later in the chapter, he writes, he says, Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Why isn't it about you and why isn't it about me? Because God has made us. Isaiah brings them back to the opening of human history, the second chapter in the book of Genesis, and he says, do you remember that it's God who knelt on the earth and took a handful of dirt and fashioned it into a human being and breathed into the breath of life, and there before him stood in human form one created in the image of God. And now you think that you created from the dirt of the earth in the image of the Almighty should make the Almighty in an image of stone or wood? What are you thinking? Remember why I created you, said God. I created you to serve me. You are my servant. Israel got it all wrong. I mean, the culture they were in got it all wrong. God created us to serve him. We create gods because we want to serve them, whatever gods they might be. We say, save me to the gods that we have made. It's entirely wrong. Isaiah says, further to the people that God has made, that they might serve him, he says, God will not forget you. He will not forget you. And that promise is made to a people who are committed to forgetting God. <laughs> the assurance of the great promises is promised in forgiveness, a promise made by God that sweeps away the sins of his people, invites them back into his presence so that they can so that they can worship him and know him and serve him only. Israel had his problems with that, and so, of course, do we, and so, of course, do I. Do I remember who made me? I, had, I no more willed myself into being than did anyone else. We all bear the stamp of singular origin. We all came from the same God, who we are to acknowledge as the author of life, who is to be worshipped as God alone, 
Who else could we worship other than the one who has made us? There is a sanctity of human life, every human life made in the image of God. Do we remember why we walk this earth? God says, I put you here to serve me. It is a singular purpose. It's not so that everybody could serve me or that I could serve myself, but rather all of us could serve him. Is there any more noble purpose than to go to work every morning? I don't care where you work or what you do, somehow carrying with you the belief that I am here to serve Almighty God. It's in my home. It's in a classroom, it's in a factory floor, it's in an office building. I am here to serve Almighty God. That is my purpose. God, help me figure out how I can best do that today. I don't want to serve anyone other than fundamentally serving you and in your name to serve others so that they too can turn and serve you. A singular purpose I will serve God. With a singular promise, God says, I won't forget you. Forget your idols. Don't forget God. He has not forgotten us. You know, those words came to life centuries later when a carpenter, his name was Jesus, took a block of wood and put it on his shoulder and carried it to a hill and planted it in the earth and was nailed to that tree for the sins of people like you and me. He is our God. No other God besides you. No other God so that we could know him, love him, serve him. Now, if you're in that relationship with God and if if, like me, you're willing to say to the people around, you know, it really isn't about you, and if you have the courage to say to yourself, it's not about me, and we agree together it is about God, then there is a glorious promise that this chapter ends with in Isaiah 44, 23. Look at these words. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. Isn't that interesting? All your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Isaiah says, you know, you people, you take trees and you cut them down and then you build fires and you cook your meal and then you take what's left over and you make a God that looks just like you. He says, no, no, you got it all wrong. Look at that tree. Listen to that tree as it sings the glory of Almighty God. Every um, Christmas season at the Morton Arboretum, they have this display. Any of you been there? The, the light show at the Morton? I mean, it is quite spectacular. It, it, it's worth the experience. And one of the things they do is they light these trees, and they're beautiful colored lights, and a lighted pathway will take you into the forest. And then the trees begin to sing. <laughs> it's like being in heaven for just a moment. I mean, really singing trees. <laughs> well, Isaiah says, yeah, that's what they do. Because all creation is made to sing the glory of Almighty God. It's not about the tree. It's about the God who made it. Hey, friends, 
We've all got those Gutzon Borglund moments when we want to carve something high and lift it up way up there that will reflect the glory of whatever it is we think needs reflected. Whether the picture of something that can inspire us, something that can save us, something that's worth worshiping. And at that moment, there are three little phrases that I want you to, to think of and maybe even repeat to yourself. It's not about you. You are not the most important person in the whole world. And it's not about me. I'm not the most important person in the whole world. Only God. Only God. You are my God. I will worship no other but you. Almighty God, I believe those words and then I struggle to live them and confess to you that there are still moments even moments like in church and in worship and in life together, when I say, but it, I want it to be more about me. And it only belongs to you. Father, I pray for a heart and a life that sings with the trees of creation the glory of our God. Part of a world that sings the glorious message of redemption, life in Jesus Christ forevermore for all who repent and believe. I want to sing, O oh God, to the God who only is to be worshipped. So I pray that you will forgive the impulse to create an idol and that you will nurture in me a deep and lifelong passion to serve you and you alone. 